Word, I'm gonna say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on this episode of Word, we celebrate Black Poetry Day with one of the Valley's champions of the arts. It's refreshing to see people willing to want to come together and work on projects. And it's just not always about themselves. And in honor of the annual anniversary that occurred earlier this month, we welcome poetry celebrating it. I am talking directly to the non-Black reader or listener who may not think that they need to be critiqued for their interaction or appropriation of Blackness. But first, Howard Gershkowitz is a Valley-based writer. His latest novel, Not On My Watch, is a medical thriller ripped from the headlines. I was very fortunate. I attended a workshop in New York uh, Writers' Convention where I met Stephen James, who is a nationally uh, known author. He invited me to his workshop in Tennessee, and uh, he and Bob Dugani, another uh, nationally known author, held this workshop. And I learned so much about how properly to line out a character, uh, to create a plot that's intriguing, uh, and to make sure that the subplots uh, match to it. So it, it took a lot of work in terms of having other people help me. And intrigue is a big part of Not On My Watch. It's a thriller that's actually inspired by actual events at several hospitals, mm-hmm. uh, which were indicted for fraud to the tune of $100 million. I'm assuming we're talking about things like insurance fraud, or is it broader than that? Well, specifically in this case, it's Medicare fraud. Um, I ran across an article... Uh, and I'm not going to mention, obviously, the hospitals because I don't want to be sued. But the first one was in New Jersey. And again, they were indicted by uh, the government on Medicare fraud. Uh, I had the opportunity because I had a customer who worked for one of the major chains uh, as a uh, uh, executive. And I asked her, you know, is this the kind of thing that could happen in any of your hospitals? She, of course, assured me, no, 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 uh, we have policies and procedures in place where this could not happen to us. It was not three weeks later that one of the hospitals under her watch uh, uh, on the East Coast uh, was indicted for Medicare fraud. Wow. And so I said, you know what, this has got to be a big problem, and I'm going to incorporate it into this book and see if I can't expose it. Yeah, and fiction's a good way to do that, I think. But the story, is it actually set here in Arizona? Yes. Okay. Um, Unfortunately, uh, my wife uh, has been a frequent visitor to one of our local hospitals, which happens to be one of the few left in Arizona that isn't owned by a large conglomerate. So it simply made sense uh, to make them the target because I was very familiar with the facility. The general consensus is that these large corporations, uh, mega medical firms, are taking over all these smaller hospitals. And in some cases, they are systematically instituting Uh, policies and procedures that uh, uh, result in Medicare fraud. So I just figured, let's make it local. Most of my fan base is local. So uh, I figured that was a good way to get a good start. Well, give us an understanding then of the characters and sort of how the plot plays out in this book. Well, the main character, Donna, is a nurse at that particular hospital. She finds out that it's going to be taken over by a corporation out of Boston that happens to be run by her ex-husband. She runs into an old high school friend of hers at a local Starbucks. Um, They meet, uh, they start talking, they start dating. 
uh, and she convinces him that he needs to help her. He happens to be a financial advisor. I put myself in the book to fight off this particular conglomerate takeover. Uh, he enlists the help of uh, someone from mergers and acquisitions from the same firm. And the rest of the book is twofold. It's fighting the corporation in the hopes that they can not only stop it, uh, but to bring the principles uh, to justice for what they've done in the other hospitals around the country. Meanwhile, as a subplot, uh, the two of them are falling in love, but he's not sure whether she actually is uh, serious about their relationship or merely using him to help fight off her ex-husband's uh, takeoff bid. I like that, that there is a subplot in there that uh, makes it work doubly hard, I guess, is a way to describe it. I don't want to rush you, but, you know, this book is just out. Would you give us a hint on what you're working next? Do you think you'll continue with uh, your love of fiction? Oh, absolutely. I've actually got the next book already written. It's called Special Delivery. Um, it actually, again, something right out of the headlines. Uh, I saw a, uh, an article about a young woman who moved to Oregon uh, because they have one of the uh, uh, few states that has assisted suicide assuming you meet all the criteria and so forth. And so this book is about a young man who's in love with this woman from Fargo, North Dakota. Uh, she is depressed and wants to uh, do herself in. So she orders one of these devices from Oregon on the black market, which by the way is true. Unfortunately, you can do so. But they deliver it to uh, her address here in Arizona. And being the gallant young man that he is, he decides he's going to deliver this plain box that says urgent, please deliver immediately, not realizing what's in it. So he's hoping to have her fall in love with him for being so gallant, not knowing that he's bringing the very means by which he means to self-emulate. Howard, thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us. I appreciate your time and effort as well, Tom, and I look forward to listening to you again on the radio. Howard Gershkowitz's latest novel is not on my watch. You can find out a bit more about him on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Football season is here, and that means tailgating time. If your tailgate doesn't function like it used to, consider donating that SUV or pickup to the KJZZ Vehicle Donation Program and support the programs you love. Find out more at cars.kjzz.org. Did you know two out of every three NPR listeners prefer to purchase products and services from public radio sponsors? You can see the benefits of becoming a KJZZ corporate sponsor at sponsor.kjzz.org. You have your favorites. Oh man, my favorite mug. And maybe it's about time to treat yourself to a new favorite. Mugs and t-shirts for you and the family are at shop.kjzz.org. So what are you waiting for? Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Our next guest is Leah Marche, a Phoenix native and tireless advocate and participant within the arts and culture landscape of the Valley. She's an inaugural participant in the Google News Initiative Startup Boot Camp for her project Bell Bulletin. We caught up recently to talk about Black Poetry Day and the arts in Arizona. And I wanted to know firstly what's working in artistic communities and what also might be improved a bit. What I've seen is a lot of collaboration, and obviously there can always be more collaboration. It's refreshing to see people willing to want to come together and work on projects, and it's just not always about themselves, right? Right. Um, 
showcasing others. You know, in fact, with you, like when you came to me before and you're like, oh, I'd like to get you. I was like, oh, how about you interview this person? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, I pushed it to someone else. But then that's also, um, you know, just stepping out of your world and being able to see, hey, what are others doing? Being cognizant of the world around you and what others are doing so that you can say, hey, well, here's so-and-so doing that, or I might not be a fit, but this person would be very good because I've watched them and observed them and seen the great things that they're doing. Yeah, I mean, obviously on this podcast, Word, we talk about literature of all different types. And I mean, you've certainly been part of that scene in, in numerous ways. What are some of the upcoming literary geared events that you're working on? With the whole pandemic, it's kind of like I've taken a backseat. Maybe I've been stuffed in the trunk. <laughs> it's kind of what has happened. So it's like, okay, well, do I even have to to do that? You know, um, before it was just like, go, go, go. And, you know, always have to be doing something. And so I was appreciative kind of of that time and that space to just kind of reflect on things that I've done and to really say, yeah, do I need to be doing that? Or what could what else could I be doing at this time? So even just during that time, I spent a lot of time just being in the learning mode and finding, you know, new ways to do things. I was working on a project with a colleague of mine, Mike Fister, and we had the Jazz Meets Poetry series at the Nash. And so we haven't been able to bring that back, but we're working on that. So that would be something in the future. Another project that I've kind of geared too, because my background is journalism as well. So I um, was part of the Google Startup Initiative Bootcamp. And so uh, working on uh, launching that and just sharing information on the Black and African American community. So that's a project that I kind of have in the wheelhouse. One of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you, apart from all of that other great stuff, is as this program airs, we've actually gone past Black Poetry Day. And Stanley A. Ransom is responsible for starting this, but it's because of the first published African-American poet. And maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So Mr. Ransom, he actually did a publication attributing Jupiter Hammond, who was born in 1711. And in around Long Island, so it was around the area that Stanley Ransom was from. In fact, uh, I believe Stanley Ransom has like a relative that Jupiter Hammond quoted, a relative who was like a minister. Jupiter Hammond's poetry was really uh, steeped with religious overtones and spirituality. So the publication that Stanley Ransom put together was America's first Black poet uh, and giving honor to him. But it was in 1970 that he wanted to really showcase Black poetry and the celebration of that. And so he initiated that day and just making it an opportunity for all people to appreciate what the contributions of Black poets and writers have been. So he was born in 1928, and he's uh, still out there promoting poetry at over 90 years old. 
Oh, wow. That's awesome. I read a little bit about Mr. Ransom, and he was public librarian for a long time. And then this book that you mentioned, America's First Black Poet, actually came out in uh, May of last year. So it's relatively recent. And again, October 17th was Jupiter Hammond's birthday in 1711. I think it was something like a 90-line poem Jupiter Hammond put out. 88 lines, I think. An evening thought. Right. Yeah. And so he was really looking at the landscape of what was happening. Obviously, slavery was during that time. And then just trying to instill in people what choice can they have, right, in in how they're going to live and how are they going to show compassion to others. And even in the state that they're in, how are they able to have hope? Were you hopeful when Amanda Gorman was selected as the inaugural poet for President Biden? What did you think about that? It was exciting. It was great to see this young poet have a chance to shine and, you know, to put forth all of the work that she has done over the years and uh, to be able to to make a statement. It's great to see that, you know, just over the the last couple of years to see the focus that has been on these voices that may not always get to be heard, even out of the negative things that have been happening, there has been some positive things to look forward to. But yeah, it's great to see all of the things that are happening to her. And then that just becomes a ripple effect, right? Because then those who are peers of her, those who are coming after her, not only are inspired, but now they have the impetus to continue in their work. Right. And and speaking of inspiration, I mean, it inspired an artist here in Phoenix to do a gigantic mural featuring her prominently at a light rail station stop. Central and Roosevelt. Yeah, it's beautiful. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at it, and I don't know how long it'll be there, but it's the artist Jerome Fleming. Uh, He goes by Color Bandit on uh, Instagram. That's K-U-L-O-R bandit. Um, But he has a great way of representing people and faces and and color. So I would suggest that everyone go check that out if they're able to do that or just to to check out his art. When I saw it and, and heard about it, I was like, oh, that's so great because it's perfect timing in terms of Black Poetry Day being in October. And he probably didn't know that. And there's a lot of people that don't know that there's a National Black Poetry Day. And of course, there's a day for everything, right? And every day can be a day for poetry. That was great to see. Speaking of a day for poetry, I wanted to give you a little bit of space. Do you have a poem maybe of your own to take us out with? This was way back in, I guess, what, 2007. So for the Governor's Arts Awards, we had the opportunity to do the invocation and we, you know, performed a, a poem, an opening poem to set the stage for, for that event. And so this was part of a bigger poem, but this was a piece that I did within that. So I am going to share that with you. And what's it called? The piece, overall piece was called Innovation because that was the theme of the Governor's Arts Awards, but it was innovation and in parentheses, if I could change the world. This is how it goes. If I could change the world, we'd stop dancing around the issues. 
Capoeira for truth, wisdom, and better schools, because if a mind is a terrible thing to waste, it's time to be boys and be girls for breakthrough. Examine the old, established new rules. The sooner we choose to recycle our roots, we can produce biorhythms of timeless movements. Be living proof that change is ever-changing and never-ending, so let's rain dance for renaissance. Waltz to epic expressions. Whirl in the face of innocence. Tangle with the oral tradition. Stomp against negative isms and dissonance. We are a village of one. So each one teach one, join hands and cakewalk with diversity, with dignity, flinging our arms wide in some place of history. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love that line, rain dance for renaissance. Where did you come up with that? I wanted to focus on movement, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I brought in all of these different types of dances. And, you know, in our melting pot and in our cultural expression, there's so many different dances, right? So obviously being here in Arizona, we have our, our Native American tribes. So I wanted to make sure that that was in there. But we have so many just different expressions and different ways to dance. But then how does that also deal with how we are also able to express our words you know just i was just putting it all in there yeah you sure yeah. did because i mean it's like you got to move to create change right well leah i want to thank you so much for coming to word and sharing some of yourself and your words with us i really appreciate your time and thanks for all of your hard work and creativity thank you and i appreciate all you know that you're doing to spotlight the talented people that we have here in our state. And I wanted people to know to check out blackpoetryday.com and just to follow along with us the rest of the year to see how they can learn more about Black poets and what they can do to promote that. Leah, thanks again. Take care. All right. You too. You can find out a bit more about Leah Marche on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You're a texting, emailing, tweeting extraordinaire. You and your cell phone are inseparable. It's the first thing you grab in the morning and the last thing you see before bed. Tap your screen and download the KJZZ mobile app. You can listen live and multitask. Tap the KJZZ app and stay connected. It's at your app store. Maybe you've lived in the Valley for years, or maybe you just got here. If you're curious about Arizona and have questions, KJZZ wants to know about them. Send us a question at qaz.kjzz.org, and if yours is selected, KJZZ reporters will investigate. Nobody. Everybody want to be black. Don't nobody want to be black. Don't nobody want to lose breath. Everybody wants some long dreads. Don't nobody want to dread cops. Nightmarish, don't shoot gunshots. Don't nobody want to forfeit, forget where their motherland is. Don't nobody want to whip soap. It ain't pretty as the me goes. Don't nobody want to be black. They don't want to live in handcuffs. Their world collapsing from depression like stellar core compression. They don't want to vanish and become cold statistics. 
live life alight in spite of, to die and be rebranded cheap revolution, hung high on pole signs for stature or warnings for black folk in the future. Everybody want to stream future. Everybody want to trap rap. Don't nobody want to lose breath. Don't nobody want to lose self to a jail sale or Dubois mask. Everybody want a fat ass, big lips, smooth walk with a cool bop. Don't nobody want to lose breath. Don't nobody want to lose breath. Don't nobody want to lose. None of you. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Axadon. What you just heard is a poem called Nobody featured on the new spoken word album, 808s and Other Worlds, Memories, Remixes, and Mythologies. It's by local poet and teacher, Sean Avery Medlin. Medlin joined me recently to talk about their poem, the album, and what it was like growing up black in a suburb of Phoenix. Nobody is definitely a poem that I have wanted to write or, or have written, I think, many times, then landed finally on the version that's in the print and the audio book growing up here in arizona i'm not a native or born here my dad uh, is air force so i moved here around age eight after living in all over the world actually but once i moved here i pretty much stayed in arizona and i was living in the suburbs of avondale and it was hard it's a really hard place to grow up as a dark-skinned black child so i would say that nobody comes definitely from that experience and it also comes from the experience that i had in college i was fortunate enough to leave arizona for a full tuition scholarship to university of wisconsin madison and um i was just excited that i got full tuition scholarship so i went out to madison wisconsin i had never been there before i really didn't know anybody there. I just dove. And it was incredibly difficult culture shock adjusting to being in a place with, you know, I thought the place I came from was very white. But then I went there and I got a whole new definition of what that meant. So without going into all of the painful and sometimes traumatic (laughs) experiences that happened to me, I had plenty of material and fuel for a piece like nobody. My impression is it's kind of like, dear white people, this is what you're doing. Maybe you don't realize it, but you need to stop. Mm. Am I close? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I wanted nobody to, I wanted to be unflinching for sure. I wanted it to be direct. You know, it ends with the last word of the poem is you. And for a long time, that was not there. It wasn't until almost the end of the book editing process that I added just that single word at the end of the poem on its own line, because I felt like that would finally drive the point home that, yes, I am talking directly to the non-Black reader or listener who may not think that they do any of this, may not think that they need to be critiqued for their interaction or appropriation of Blackness and Black culture, but contrary to what 
most people think in terms of being politically correct around race or, you know, this whole idea of like, you know, I don't talk about it, so I can't do anything wrong in the realm of race. Their silence and their continued engagement with popular forms of Black media is a form of violence. And I wanted that to be very clear by the end of the poem. Violence, how so? I certainly understand the cultural appropriation piece of what you're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. When I think about the consumption of Blackness in this country, right, it's everything is is Black, the way that uh, we talk, the way that we dress, all the music we listen to has roots in Black culture. It's ubiquitous. And yet the atrocities still happening to Black people, numerous, not just talking about police shootings, right? Thinking about prison industrial complex and thinking about the failure of public school systems, thinking about the rates of poverty, uh, thinking about the fact that Black women have a much harder time getting the help they need during birth or before and after care for birth. It's really uh, systemic, the anti-Blackness in this country. So that's why I say that it's violent. It's violent to have all of these non-Black people consuming Black culture at such an alarming rate with little to no concern for what is actually happening to Black people. Yeah, and also it's one thing to be woke on social media or to virtue signal. And I think what you just said there is on one thread, maybe there's an element of appreciation in, in trying to identify, but the whole point of the poem is you can't really identify with me. Yeah, basically. <laughs> basically, like the position of the Black American is unique. It's a social caste created specifically in slaveholding countries. America being obviously the longest lasting slaveholding country and thus having the most intense racial caste system. And even amongst Black folks, obviously, race is not um, a monolith, right? But even amongst Black folks, sometimes you are hard pressed to find uh, similar experiences. So when I think about between Black folks and non-Black folks, not to say that there's nothing at all in common, right? Not to say that us all being human isn't enough, but to say that the way the world acts upon the Black person is unique and it only happens to the Black person. The title of this work, which features that poem, is 808s and Other Worlds, Memories, Remixes, and Mythologies. What is the number 808 in reference to? The number 808 is in reference to two things. One is a album by Kanye West titled 808s and Heartbreak. It's an album that came out in 2009. Uh, I was pretty young around that time. I was probably 14 years old. It was an album that was really poorly received when it was released, but it was incredibly prophetic. The, The rest of mainstream rap music from that point on sounded like that album. And also the 808 drum machine, the TR Roland 808 drum machine, it's a drum machine that came out, I want to say in the 60s. I was just about to ask if there might have been a glinting reference to that. That's interesting. Oh, yes, for sure. You know, And, and Kanye as well was referencing that drum machine. Uh-huh. And I am also referencing that specific drum machine. I feel like 
The two things that are similar between his album and The Drum Machine is that there's this way in which they're not well-received upon release. Um, they're thought to be flops or failures or, you know, Roland as a company has made better drum machines or Kanye as an artist has made better albums. But when we look at what happened after those things came out, you know, the entire music industry changed as a result of this drum machine and this album. So pipe dreams, but I wanted my book to have some sort of similar effect. I felt like maybe I won't be understood upon release, but hopefully in the future, folks will find the value in this. You also teach creative writing, and I'm kind of curious, what are some of the things that you stress to students when you're specifically teaching them poetry or spoken word? Yeah, thank you for that question. I try and stress first and foremost, safety. I don't want any of my students to write something that they feel like is too vulnerable, perform something they feel like is too vulnerable. You know, first and foremost, I want safety. I think the next thing I want is authenticity, which can be hard to sort of discover as a young person, I think, or sometimes it can be easy, maybe depending on the young person. But I really am not invested in having my students write the best poems or the longest poems or memorize the full piece or, you know, all of those sort of metrics are like not interesting to me. I think I really just want something internal to happen for the student, right? I want them to like realize something, unlock something, confront something, accept something, challenge something. And if they end up sharing that in a public way, whether that's with the rest of the class or on a stage somewhere, then that's wonderful. But I think that most of the writing is for the soul. Sean Avery Medlin, 808s and Other Worlds, Memories, Remixes, and Mythologies is both the book and the album, and it's available in numerous places. Sean, thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us about your latest release and also about yourself. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. This is really awesome. I appreciate being here on KJZZ. You can find out a bit more about Sean Avery Medlin on our website at word.kjzz.org. We appreciate your support of original KJZZ podcasts and programming like Word, portions of which have been nominated for Edward R. Murrow and Public Media Journalists Association Awards. We also appreciate so many who became new and sustaining members of KJZZ during our recent membership drive. If you didn't have a chance to make a gift of support, that's okay. There's a link for doing so on our website. Thanks so much for listening to Word, and we'll catch up in November for another discussion. I'm Tom Maxidon. Word. Word? Word. What's the word? Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.